0: Thank you, Brittany and worship team. And uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Life is full of surprises. Some can be, some can be Good be some can be not so Good and Good can be Good Good when reality, when what actually happens, does not correspond to our expectations, we are surprised. And sometimes the results of that surprise can be fairly inconsequential. As, for example, when you may have planned a special family outing, a reunion on a particular Saturday, and the weather forecast all week long has been for sunny and pleasant and uh, seasonably warm temperatures. And uh, you're looking forward to it. And then it turns out at the very last minute that the whole event has rained out. Um, you're surprised. You're also disappointed. But in most cases, that's probably not a ma- of a major consequence in your life. But sometimes... The consequences of a surprise can be life changing. Christian apologist Scott Klusendorf related an experience that he had while stranded in the Pittsburgh airport. He wrote Have you ever watched that show, Cops? It's the one where they put a video camera in the squad car so you can see people get busted. I saw a show like that when I got stuck in Pittsburgh due to a flight cancellation. had nothing to do but watch television. This particular episode featured the mass arrest of 500 people all for outstanding warrants. That is, these people were previously arrested for breaking the law, they were given a court date to, to return for a hearing, but they refused to show up for their appointment with the judge. The local judge was tired of these lawbreakers skipping court dates, so he devised a plan. All 500 people were sent a mailer that read, come claim your prize, it's worth $5,000. Well, many of these people came rushing down to a secluded warehouse to see what they'd won. They were euphoric, giving each other high fives and hugs. They were told to wait for their name to be called and then to proceed through the door on the right. There was only one problem. They had no idea who was actually waiting for them behind that door. One by one, names were called. People would excitedly dash through the door to claim their prize. And then came the shocker. Monty Hall and Bob Barker were not waiting behind those doors. <laughs> Police officers with handcuffs were. Once the door shut behind the would-be winner, he was promptly cuffed and sent to jail for the outstanding warrants it was a brilliant sting operation these people were nailed because they had no idea who was waiting for them they had a surprise when reality does not correspond to expectations the results can sometimes be devastating as in the case of this big sting I've entitled my message this morning, The Worst Possible Surprise. It's based on the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. This may, in fact, be the scariest passage in the Bible. Please follow in your Bibles as I read Matthew 7, 13 through 27. And as you follow, be looking for... That crisis point, that point where the reality does not correspond to the expectation, where the reality is different than what the person was expecting. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, And great was its fall. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning that we have the privilege, and the freedom of coming together in this place of worship, opening the word of God and reading it, meditating on it together. And Lord, we would ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us today. Lord, where we need to be comforted, comfort us. Where we need to be corrected, correct us. But Lord, speak to us, we pray. And when you have spoken, help us to choose, strengthen us to choose, to hear and to act. In Jesus' name, amen. What is this context? What is the context of these words? Well, Jesus is wrapping Wrapping up what we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount. He's painted a scene of judgment, which he refers to in verse 22 as that day. He himself is the judge. Jesus warns that on that day, there will be surprises. And that is what is so terrifying about this scene. On that day, there will be some who thought that everything was okay between themselves and God. They were sure that they were going to heaven. They were sure that they would be welcomed by God into his eternal home. And instead, they are shocked to hear the words, Depart from me, I never knew you. They expected to be received. They heard, depart from me, I never knew you. What a scary possibility. Jesus makes it clear that entrance into heaven is not automatic just because you die. An entrance into heaven is not automatic just because you have been religious before dying. He warns of a danger, the real possibility of self-deception. These people were convinced that they were going to heaven, that all was good between themselves and God, but it wasn't. Who are these people? First of all, they are not atheists, agnostics, or defiant secularists no one would have assumed that such folks were going to heaven. In fact, they would not have said that they were going to heaven. After all, these are, these are folks who usually spend their lives denying the existence of heaven and of hell and of God and of looking down on or ridiculing those who believe such things and writing them off as escapist. These people, furthermore, identify with Jesus and Christian things. After all, they address Jesus as Lord, Lord, very respectfully. They are people who perform religious deeds. Our text says, on that day, some people will say, didn't we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. These are people who make the claim of doing spectacular religious things. In Jesus' name. Jesus, the judge in this scene, does not deny their claims. It is not Jesus' main point in this text. To warn us that not all miracles are from God. But it is a lesson that we can take from this text. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, Pharaoh's magicians mimicked some of Moses' miracles. And we are warned in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10, that at the coming of the Antichrist in the last days, quote, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. We are warned about this, the coming of this one and that he's going to come with signs and wonders, miracles. Not all miracles have their origin in the Lord, so beware. So who are these people? They're not atheists, they're not agnostics, they're not secular, uh, a radical, defiant secularist. They're people who somehow identify with Jesus. And finally, we're told that there are many of them, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, not a few, many. Jesus is not speaking of an occasional exception. Many will assume that they are okay with God and that heaven is their home. Yet Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus warns that some will be deceived because they have performed spectacular deeds. Others may be deceived because they can remember when they recited the sinner's prayer. They remember the exact day and the circumstance and perhaps even the emotion they felt as they prayed that prayer. Others will trust the fact of their baptism or that they have worked hard or taught Sunday school for 25 years. These words of Jesus should trouble us. They ought to compel us to ask a very critical question. How do I know if i will be numbered among the many who are deceived how do i know jesus answers that question for us in this text and he answers with a very simple parable he has just revealed the terrifying truth that will confront many on the day of judgment and then he immediately follows that with the word therefore it is as if Jesus said, because self-deception is a real possibility and because judgment day awaits every single one of you, therefore, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Let's read that parable again, beginning at verse 24. Jesus has just said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, therefore, because I'm going to say that one day. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When you compare verses 24 and 26, you see that in both individuals, both individuals hear the words of Jesus. Both are building a house. Both are subject to the same violent storms that slam against their respective houses. There's nothing in the parable to this point that indicates that one is more stable than the other. But the storm exposes the difference. The first house had been built on the foundation of a solid rock, the second had not. Both houses look nice from the outside. But it was the storm that exposed the truth. One was founded on the rock, the other on the sand. And the storm revealed the reality. Is your life built on rock or sand? Jesus tells us how you can know. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, can be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So what's the difference? Both hear the words. The difference is action. The difference is obedience. Hearing Jesus' word is not enough. Hearing without obedience leads to a false security. The only true evidence of a right relationship with God is a heart that is devoted to learning and then doing what is pleasing to Christ. To hear his words and act on them. To hear his word and to act on it. That's the only true evidence. True saving faith in Jesus Christ always leads to a living faith. True saving faith cannot, cannot ever make peace with sin easy. Beware of a false peace that rests upon the delusion that knowing the right doctrine or pursuing religious activities even if divorce from obedience to Jesus is a safe place to be, because it is not a safe place to be, in the end, that delusion leads to those terrifying words, depart from me, I never knew you. The difference was action and obedience. What difference do these words of Jesus make in your life, my life? What from what Jesus has taught us, what can be applied to us? How should we live based on Jesus' words? First of all, Jesus has warned us in this text that there is a final judgment. There is a final judgment. That day has been set and it is coming and nothing will stop it and no man will escape it. Consider the words in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now notice this. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Brothers and sisters, that day is already fixed on God's calendar. And we are moving toward it. And we are seven days closer to it than we were at this time last week. Nothing will stop it. No man will escape it. And this world is on a collision course with its creator and its king. Jesus has warned us. We may read novels. We may see movies. And their producers are trying to tell us that we're on a collision course. We're on a collision course with an asteroid. We're on a collision course with with global warming. And with uh, terrible, terrible events that are going to be destructive of the earth and of human life. And we keep hearing about all these collision courses that we're on. But there's one collision course that has been fixed. Earth. Humanity is on a collision course with its creator. And Jesus reminds us of that in this text when he talks about that day, the day of judgment that is coming. Jesus has warned us. Do you believe him? What's the evidence that you believe him? What's the evidence in the way you think, the choices you make, The life you live. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard lived at the beginning of the 19th century and he died at the age of 42. Kierkegaard told a parable in which he described his vision of the end of this present age. In his parable, he imagined a theater in which a variety show was playing. There were musical acts. Dancers, magicians, comedians, acrobats. One amazing act after another. And each act received applause from the audience. And suddenly the show was interrupted as the theater manager stepped onto the stage. Speaking calmly, not wanting to panic his patrons, the manager said, Ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you that the theater is on fire. Please get up. And move in an orderly fashion to the exits. There's plenty of time for you all to leave safely, so please do it at once. There's a moment of stunned silence. And then the audience breaks out in laughter and applause. The theater patrons believe it's an act. They think the manager is a comedian. No, 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 you don't understand, the manager says. There is a fire, and you must get up and leave the building immediately. The patrons laugh even more uproariously, and they applaud and cheer even more loudly. The manager tries again to warn the people, but they will not believe him. And even when smoke and flames appear at the back of the stage, the audience thinks it's merely done for effect. The manager sees he can do no more, so he runs off the stage and out of the building. The audience, meanwhile, hoots and cheers, and claps in appreciation of the manager's performance. Seconds later, the fire sweeps through the building, killing everyone inside. Kierkegaard concluded his parable, saying, and so will our age end, I think, going down in fiery destruction to the applause of a crowded house of cheering spectators. people all around us, perhaps some of us, are applauding and laughing and enjoying the show of this world, not taking seriously what Jesus Christ has said, that this world is on fire and is racing toward an appointment with its creator and judge. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets, And Jesus, the Son of God himself, have warned us of the end. And like the patrons in the parable, we have been warned. Act before it is too late. How have you responded? How are you responding to Jesus' words? Secondly, Jesus has warned us this morning specifically of the very real possibility of self-deception. A self-deception with eternal consequences. Religious words and religious actions are not enough. What matters is hearing Jesus' words and acting on them. And isn't that unmistakably clear from Jesus' parable about the two builders of houses? Those who are safe as they face that day are those whose lives bear consistent fruit from following his words. Those who have a genuine saving faith will always demonstrate that faith by a living faith. Consider the words in Second Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus Christ has died for each of us. He has died to atone for our sins. He has died to make a a way of safety back to our creator, to reconcile us to our creator. And this text of Scripture, as many others tell us, that God's intention is that because he died for us, now we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That is God's intention. Having believed the gospel... Having believed that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and has died and risen again to rescue us. Having believed that, no longer to live our life to please ourselves, but Him. To live our life to hear the words of Jesus and to act on them. I know what happens at times when sometimes as Christians we hear. The words, like from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you haven't done what I said. And so sometimes what happens is that a Christian with a very sensitive conscience, which is a good thing, says, I know, I know I want to please the Lord, but I struggle in my life. There are areas that I struggle with in my life. And you may be one this morning who, hearing these words, says, I struggle to honor the Lord at times. I want to tell you this morning that these words of Jesus are not meant to tell you that you should expect sinless perfection in your life. The Bible does not teach sinless perfection. Otherwise, why would it include that wonderful, wonderful promise in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would that wonderful promise, which, by the way, is written to Christians, the words of 1 John are not written to the unbelieving world. If they're written to Christians, why would God have included that tremendous wonderful promise of forgiveness to Christians if having received Christ, you now lived a sinless life. No. We do struggle at times. But if you struggle, you need to ask yourself this one critical telling question. Is the desire of my life to hear And act on Jesus' words. I may struggle in areas, and I need to keep praying and asking and reading and memorizing the Word of God and and asking God's help in breaking areas of sin in my life. But I know that the the direction of my heart is toward Jesus, not away from Him. I want to hear the Word of Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus. And I want to say to you this morning, that the Christian life is one of continual repentance. That as you walk this Christian life, there'll be times where you need to repent. But the question is this, is the direction of your heart toward Jesus or away from him? Even if you profess to be a Christian, is the direction of your heart toward Jesus or away from him? And if it is toward Jesus and toward wanting to hear his word and act upon it and follow him, then you do not need to fear that day of judgment. There is a third application of this to our lives. A very familiar criticism of Jesus and of Christians comes when a prominent Christian is shown to be a hypocrite. The unbelieving world gloats and struts. The unbelieving world ridicules and taunts when a prominent Christian is exposed for blatant hypocrisy, whether by regular visits to prostitutes or embezzling funds or preying upon the desperate and the gullible. And some in the world try to justify their own unbelief by pointing to the hypocrisy of Christians. And the world taunts the church. What do you say to that Christian? Look at that prominent Christian. Look at the way they've lived. Look what they've done. What do you say to that? The Church is full of hypocrites. Based on Jesus' words here, you know how to answer that question. You can answer like this. I trust the words of Jesus. He says the day of judgment is coming and many are in for the worst possible surprise. Their destiny is hell, not heaven. And no matter how many religious deeds they point to or how passionately they profess to be followers of Christ, they will be exposed. You cannot hide behind them. You cannot hide behind Christians are hypocrites. And finally, this morning, based on Jesus' words, you know how and I know how to live securely each day in a dangerous world that is openly defiant against God and his moral law. We need to acknowledge as Christians today that we live in scary times. The words of David Jeremiah ring true. And they're eerily prophetic. This is what Jeremiah said. For all of our efforts to preserve the soul of our nation, we are failing. We have crossed an invisible line. And the line is, the die is cast. The tipping point has been reached. And apart from a gracious intervention from God... This nation is not going back to the culture and values it held in the past. In other words, Roe versus Wade will never be overturned. The sanctity of marriage is a relic of the past. And God will never again be welcome in our schools. For two centuries, American followers of Christ have been protected from persecution. But those days are over. As we move forward into the next decade, suffering will become the new normal for believers. In the midst of increasing moral chaos, in the midst of increasing rejection of Jesus Christ and his eternal word, how shall we then live? Jesus has told us in these words, hasn't he? He's told us in these words, hear my words and act on them. Wonderfully simple. Not always easy, but wonderfully simple principle. Hear my words and act on them. And Jesus promised that your house will be built on a foundation that will withstand every storm that batters it. Whether that storm is cancer or some other difficult prognosis that you have to deal with or injustice from employers or from the legal system or from persecution for your faith or the attacks of the enemy in your darkest hours. And finally, the storm of the judgment day itself. Jesus promises that your house will be built upon a rock that will not fall and will not fail in the midst of those storms And how do you build that house? How do you build that house? Hear his word and act upon it. Simple truth, Jesus taught us. In conclusion this morning, consider the words of John 14, 21. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The same simple truth. Hear my word and act on it. And Jesus gives a wonderful promise to you. He says, if you will live your life that way, my father will love you. I will love you. And here's the promise. I will disclose myself to you. There are going to be ways that Jesus discloses himself in your life to you because you love him and you're seeking to keep his commandments and do his will. The same simple call to obedience and a great promise that comes with it. A simple, intentional life of following Jesus will make a difference now because Jesus says, I will disclose myself to you. And when that day, the day of judgment comes, you will have no reason to fear the worst possible surprise because you will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. All praise, all thanks to God through Jesus Christ that that is true for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus that we've considered today. And you have told us through Jesus. You have told us that what you're looking for in our lives is faith in Jesus as our Savior. Our only hope of life, eternal life. Our only hope of forgiveness and peace with you, our Creator. And you've told us that having accepted Jesus, you've told us how to live, read his word, listen for his word, and act on it. And thank you for the promise that when we do that, we are building our house upon a solid rock that won't fail. Thank you. And Lord, as we continue our worship, May we give our tithes and offerings with thankful, grateful hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.